Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie, a PhD student at Northwestern University. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with David Milne, a historian at the University of East Anglia. We'll be discussing his newish, but still extremely relevant book, World Making, The Art and Science of American Diplomacy. It was published all the way back in 2015 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. This is an interview that I wanted to do a long time ago, and so I'm thrilled that it's finally happening. In the book, Milne approaches the history of U.S. foreign policy as the history of ideas. By examining the biographies of foreign policy thinkers, from Alfred Thayer Mahan to Barack Obama, Milne helps us understand the changes and continuities in U.S. foreign policy by putting them in an ideational frame. One of the virtues of studying biography is that one's experiences shape how one sees the world and that a life is idiosyncratic. Therefore, an examination of the lives of foreign policy thinkers can help explain foreign policy in all its own idiosyncrasies and contradictions. It turns out that it matters that Henry Kissinger was a U.S. soldier based in post-Holocaust Germany. It also matters, as we will hopefully find out during the interview, that Paul Wolfowitz won a cooking contest in Indonesia. If it hasn't already, the book should be read by historians of U.S. foreign policy, political scientists, and intellectual historians. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with David Milne about his no longer new, but still very relevant book, World Making, The Art and Science of American Diplomacy. Thanks for joining us today, David. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be speaking with you today. Um, I learned tons from your book and uh, I'm excited that we're chatting. That's great. So to begin, how did you become a historian? Well, actually, I mean, I, I started off um, uh, doing a law degree. Uh, so, so in the UK, um, you, you start doing a law degree age 18 uh, when you leave uh, wow. when you leave school. You go straight from school and into, into studying law. And um I was the first in my family to go to university, and I, I guess law seemed like a you know a sure bet or a surer bet than uh, other subjects, perhaps, and you know instilled confidence, I guess, um, uh, you know, particularly my father, that this might be worth doing. Um, but of course, I went to study law. This was at Glasgow University, um, age eighteen, and just didn't get along with it. Uh, you know, a lot of it in the first year, a lot of law is, is rote learning. Uh, I found it really kind of tedious, quite hard uh, to engage with at that age. And so I dropped out of Glasgow and um, reapplied to a number of universities to study history, uh, which was the subject that I enjoyed the most um, at school. So um, I spent eight weeks studying a lot at Glasgow University, dropped out, uh, reapplied and ended up at the LSE uh, the, the following uh, the following summer or the following September, and yeah, that's where I, that's where I did my history degree. And um, I mean, while I was there uh, at 
at the LSE, there were a couple of um, courses in particular that I took um, in the final year. Uh, one was a course on uh, Henry Kissinger and the crisis of U.S. foreign policy, and that was that was taught by UC Hannah Mackey, who wrote a, a great book called Flawed Architect uh, on Kissinger. And I guess uh, I guess through the course of my degree, I got more and more interested in in, in U.S. foreign policy, um, in particular the sort of the connections between. Uh, ideas, intellectuals, individuals, and, and and the shaping of that policy. So, um, so yeah, that that was my sort of um, that was my early kind of academic experience of history. But really, moving away from law to history to do something that was, you know, more creative. Uh, someone, uh, you know, subject, that, you know, I would enjoy the reading, you know, potentially. And um, you know, I found law quite a hard, you know, a hard hard beginning. At, at the young age of eighteen, no kidding. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, and what brought you specifically to this book? Um, because you know this this book is uh, it is U.S. intellectual history, um, you know, history of um, U.S. foreign policy. Um, but it's uh, it's not like other books on the subject. Uh, you cover a number of different foreign policy thinkers over a pretty broad period of time. Uh, so, what was your original um, envisioning of the book? So. I, the idea for, for the book came to me um, as I was finishing, um, well, my, my PhD dissertation, actually, which was um, an intellectual biography of, of Walt Roster. Um, as I kind of researched and wrote the PhD, and as I came to revise the PhD for publication, um, I became more intrigued by the idea of... Um, you know, operating on a larger canvas. So the book, the book on uh, Rostow, you know, really focuses on his uh, service to the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Um, but I like to think anyway that, you know, I use Rostow, um, you know, to examine, you know, wider trends in, in US foreign policy at that time, uh, particularly in relation to the connections um, uh, between the social sciences and, and, and social scientists of which, you know, Rostow was, was, was just one. Uh, and, and the framing and making of policy. Um, so, you know, biography, for whatever reason, has always um, appealed to me. And I've, I found that, uh, you know, a style of writing, a style of research that I'm, that I'm very comfortable with. But I think good biography, you know, can um, potentially, you know, communicate something that goes beyond, you know, the life of an individual um, to sort of capture sort of broader trends. Um, and in respect to intellectual history, I thought, you know, why not write a book beginning in, you know, the eighth, end of the 19th century, more or less, and ending um, with the sort of the near present, uh, using individuals and their stories um, and their disputes as, you know, a way to write a book that kind of has narrative drive, but also... Uh, engages seriously um, with ideas, um, so that was yeah that that was essentially the sort of the process that and I began uh, you know when I finished my PhD my first job um, was a, a, a lectureship at Nottingham University and I, I taught a course there uh, called Intellectuals and in U.S. Foreign Policy, and that essentially became the became the book um, the ten well the ten individuals I taught in that course. Uh, are the are the individuals I came to write on uh, in, in world making? So, you know, in some ways, the Rostow book and world making constitute a single project. And the first book, which was titled America's Rasputin, is kind of like a chapter. 
uh, and world making uh, in, in, in certain ways. So, so yeah, that's 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 how it came to it. And I want to talk about the scope of the book, um, specifically as it relates to um, the research and writing process. Like what what was what was it like writing about so many different people in one book? Um, were there problems? Did it come to you naturally? You know, I think um, kind of populating the book was, you know, was was really challenging, was really interesting. Um, essentially trying to identify, you know, individuals whose ideas were, um, I don't know, ascendant potentially, or at least important, you know, to particular kind of eras in, in the history of American foreign relations. So you'll see, you'll notice from the book that some chapters look at just a few years, uh, as in the case of George Kennan, um, and some, you know, look at a far longer period, such as the chapter in Paul Wolfowitz, um, you know, which begins, you know, 1977 and ends more or less in 2005. Um, so, you know, each each chapter, um, you know, definitely kind of, the, 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 there, were, there were kind of challenges that occurred to me as I was thinking, you know, should I really write such a long chapter on Wolfowitz given, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, he was always at the second tier um, in terms of the advisory system uh, in US foreign policy. And, um, you know, that, that that was challenging. And then, of course, you have the, have the challenge of, you know, where, uh, where the archival collections are. And, you know, as a British uh, historian working uh, in the UK, um, you know, getting to the US to conduct the archival uh, research to get the funding and so on is is you know obviously more difficult than uh, than for a U.S. based scholar. Um, so yeah, it was like a fair amount of of labor, a lot of grant applications, you know, many of which, most of which were unsuccessful, and um, and then finding the time to kind of you know to, to, you know to do that necessary archival work, um, and uh, you know the book, the research for the book, it took me you know, more or less 10 years from start to finish to research and, and to write it. And, you know, my my, my, my two children were bar- born along the way in 2007 and 2009, um, you know, which brings, you know, great pleasures, but challenges of, the, of their own. Um, so, yeah, so the, 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 there was a lot to, uh, a lot to consider. Was there something, um, like, while you were doing the research for this book, did you come across anything, uh, like a document or, um, a particular archive um, that really changed your understanding of a particular person or um, a particular feature of U.S. foreign policy? You know, um, in terms of, well, I guess to begin with, I mean, the exchange that really uh, sparked my interest in writing a book, um, you know, such as world making, was it's actually in the foreign relations of the United States series, and it's an exchange between. Uh, Walt Rostow and, and George Kennan uh, in 1962 over this uh, statement of basic national security policy that, that Rostow had drafted as chair of policy planning. Now, of course, that was a position that George Kennan had held. And the issues that Rostow kind of covered in this draft uh, were ones that, um, you know, compelled a very kind of long and detailed and at times quite robust and sharp uh, and critical uh, response uh, from Cannon. Um, so Rostow's, you know, interest in expanding the U.S. foreign aid budget and devoting more attention uh, to uh, policy areas that, you know, Cannon viewed as you know, peripheral, uh, as uh, 
largely unimportant uh, or tangential to U.S. interests. Um, you know, this exchange between these two different, very different worldviews, um, you know, was really kind of revealing and interesting. Um, at one point, Kenan writes, you know, you have this very rosy, optimistic view of the sources of human behavior, which I do not share, um, which, you know, is kind of like yeah, fairly kind of neat encapsulation of, 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 of a certain type of optimism that did animate uh, Rosto and his ideas. And I like the idea of um, using these exchanges and using uh, these points of, of disagreement and criticism to kind of provide uh, the book with a certain uh, narrative drive. But, go, but going beyond that and, and probably staying on George Cannon, um, so I had a fellowship at the American Philosophical Society in 2009, uh, which was fantastic in all kinds of ways. But um, what I did when I was in Philadelphia was um, I was able, through the fellowship, which was very, um, you know, quite relaxed about using collections, not just uh, in Philly, but in other places too, I would, I would take the train uh, up to Princeton. And I took the t- train up to Princeton to look at Cannon's papers. And um, when I arrived there, uh, the archivist, um, uh, Daniel Link, said, um, you know, we've just opened Kennan's diaries. Uh, you know, his diaries have just been, you know, opened for release uh, for, for the use of uh, interested uh, archival researchers. Would you like to look? And I said, yes, I would indeed. That would be fantastic. <laughs> um, so I spent so much time kind of poring over his diaries. Um, of course, a few years later, these were you know, edited and published, edited by Frank Castigliola and published by uh, Norton, really kind of, he did a fantastic job. Um, But I was there kind of reading, you know, the handwritten diaries of of, of George Kennan and um, the material, you know, contained within that diary series was, you know, I use it all through the book, not just in the chapter on Kennan, um, but in the chapters on, you know, Paul Nitza, Henry Kissinger, uh, on Paul Wolfowitz to have, a resource that was so illuminating, but one that covered such an expanse of time. You know, so Kennan was still writing diary entries, you know, in 2002, uh, you know, age 99. You know, it's truly, it was just a gift. And um, that was a source that I was, you know, so delighted to kind of um, uh, be able to take advantage of uh, throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, each chapter in your book is about a particular foreign policy thinker. Um, but I think some of the most interesting um, aspects of your book are like the, the debates between the chapters. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, Kennan, uh, you know, he, he, he pops up over and over again. Um, and uh, um, that's really neat that this came from uh, a, a document that an archivist introduced to you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, it was, a, it was a gift. And you know, as you know, yeah, he pops up in chapters, you know, like this this kind of ghost reappearing at the feast, you know, generally, yeah. <laughs> you know, issuing these terribly gloomy kind of um, yeah. uh, utterances, which actually in, in, in the main tended out to, you know, tended to be absolutely right, whether it's on the, you know, the Americanization of the Vietnam War, whether it's in reference to the, um, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, so, yeah, that was that was immensely, immensely useful uh, uh, to have. Um, so before we get specifically into some of uh, these other foreign policy thinkers, um, I want to briefly talk about thinking about U.S. foreign policy as intellectual history. Um, so uh, you have a, a line uh, where you write, U.S. foreign policy is often best understood 
as intellectual history. Um, and elsewhere, you argue that uh, you know we should be placing U.S. foreign policy into an ideational frame. Uh, and so this cuts against you know a variety of other approaches to U.S. foreign policy, um, you know, ideology or um, economic. Um, what is your case for seeing U.S. foreign policy as intellectual history? So in reference to, well, perhaps I should talk a little bit about the, I mean, in terms of the in, the, the influence or the intellectual influence that, um, you know, uh, pushed me or prodded me in this particular direction. Um, it was it was really, it was taking a course, this was a master's course that I took at the LSC uh, with Professor Arno Westad on uh, the Cold War and Third World Revolutions was the, was the title of the course. And it was a course that became uh, the Global Cold War, which, of course, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful book, won the Bancroft Prize, and is you know superb in so many different ways. And and at the beginning of that book, I mean, uh, Westad, you know, was a student of of Michael Hunt's at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and is very attentive to the importance of ideas um, in in regards to well many different. You know parts of the world, but in reference to U.S. foreign policy, and uh, you know in particular in reference to this book uh, that he wrote. So the first couple of chapters in that book that look at these two competing universalisms, if you like, the um, you know uh, U.S.-led uh, liberal liberal capitalism and Marxism-Leninism, um, I think really kind of alerted me to you know some some of the possibilities of. Um, using uh, ideas uh, to illuminate, um, you know, essential elements of, 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 of what it was for, uh, for U.S. power to be um, interacting uh, with the world. So, so Westad research was important. I mean, also, uh, and this, this came out again when I was researching my PhD, from a British perspective, the U.S. is... Um, kind of d- distinctive in a sense you know and and it's distinctive in the sense that there exists in in the u.s foreign policy machinery as you know um almost a revolving door uh, that exists between academia and uh the policy world and so many um intellectuals so many university academics um have you know very purposefully in some cases you know set out uh to write, to research, to publish in such a way as to attract the attention of a president or a presidential aspirant and have, you know, in the fullness of time, uh, acquired policy influence. Um, U.S. foreign policy, in other words, you know, it's an, it's an area where it's very receptive uh, to, uh, to ideas, uh, to uh, intellectual output uh, for, for good and for ill. And there's plenty, you know, instances of ill, uh, I think, you know, not just in you know, in reference to my book and uh, and the one on Rostow, but there's so much, you know, so much wonderful research in this area by, you know, individuals such as Daniel Besner um, uh, recently, but it's, it's a very long list um, indeed. And again, you know, another book, I mean, probably my favourite book still on, on the Vietnam War, uh, it's David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest, which is interesting. I, I attended a, a panel at the OEH a few years ago on the cultural turn of US foreign relations and the best and the brightest was described almost as a work of cultural history, which I can kind of I kind of get that you know designation or why why you know it could be sort of portrayed in that way. Uh, but it's also a book that's very very attentive to um, uh, to ideas and the 
knowledge power nexus. And again, that was a, another book that, you know, alerted me to, you know, perhaps there's a way to, to, to approach this that, um, you know, that focuses on ideas, um, not simply as a, as, as a device, you know, to, to tell a story, uh, but because they're, you know, in, immovable, they're, they're you know, pivotal, they're centrally important to what the United States um, uh, does and has done um, in the world. Finally, I want to get into some of these foreign policy thinkers. Um, but before I do that, I just want to kind of lay out which thinkers you look at. Um, and so, um, you know, you start off with Mahan. Um, he's sort of the uh, the open door imperialist. Um, you have Wilson as the liberal internationalist. You have um, Charles Beard um, as the, uh, you know, isolationist, if that's a term that um, we want to use. Um, we have Walter Lippmann as the mouthpiece of um, uh, FDR. And then we have George Kennan and Paul Nitze as two different kinds of Cold War intellectuals. Then you have uh, Kissinger as, well, Kissinger. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, yeah. and then you have Wolfowitz kind of representing the uh, neoconservative um, turn uh, in U.S. foreign policy. And then finally, Obama as the pragmatic liberal. Uh, I just wanted yeah. to lay them all out for our listeners. Um, but to begin, uh, I, I want to start off talking about um, uh, Alfred Mahan. Um, I really enjoyed the chapter. Uh, I knew very little about his background um, coming into the chapter, uh, and I learned tons uh, from it. Um, and you write that uh, Mahan anticipated the shape of the modern world, um, which is quite bold. And so I want to know who is Mahan and what was the world that he anticipated? Yeah, so um, Mahan, in uh, you know a particularly kind of influential book uh, published in eighteen ninety on the influence of sea power upon history, um, Mahan. Um, uh, well, I, I guess I should sort of begin by saying, in its first draft, this book was a very dry, unappealing, uh, really, uh, history of uh, Anglo-French um, uh, naval rivalry. Uh, through the 17th, 18th centuries. And he submitted it to uh, many, many publishers. And he kept saying no, until one publisher said, okay, maybe this is uh, publishable, but what, what it needs is a uh, introduction uh, that sets out you know, why the story of Anglo-French naval rivalry is relevant to uh, the United States at this particular moment. Uh, you know, the, the late 19th century. And so Mahan uh, set about this, this task, uh, responding to what the editor had asked him to do. Um, now, the introduction or the introductory uh, to the book and this short section on elements of sea power kind of far surpa surpasses anything that kind of happens next in the book in terms of its uh, uh, enduring significance, if you like, its, it's insight. Um, this is what we read, really, when we read uh, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. And what he does in the book is, um, well, in, in, in some respects, he, he, he calls for the United States to much more consciously emulate uh, the United Kingdom and devoting more resource uh, to uh, its navy. Uh, um, not as a means to uh, conquer or acquire colonies uh, in, in the way that uh, uh, you know uh, Great Britain had done uh, potentially, um, but really as a means to sort of facilitate um, free uh, and open um, uh, trade. Um, so Mahan's idea was that 
uh, coaling stations uh, when acquired strategically and important points um, across the world. Uh, this is going to put the United States in an incredibly sort of advantageous uh, position in regards to the development uh, of its economy. Now, the economy, uh, or the US economy at this time, is not at all uh, export dependent. Uh, of course, this is a huge sort of domestic market. Um, some of what Charles Beard comes to argue in, in the 1930s, and I discuss later in the book, uh, in regards to American self-sufficiency and the notion, notion of um, continentalism, uh, that the US can pursue a policy of autarky. You know, this is, um, in some respects, you know, feasible, uh, certainly in the time that Mahan is writing, uh, and then, you know, further down the line as well. Um, but in terms of, a, you know, what I mean by anticipating uh, the shape of the modern world, I think it, it refers really, or what I'm referring to there is um, economic forces uh, that, um, uh, that are powerful, uh, that relate to, um, well, I suppose, to use a more contemporary term, sort of globalization, and to advocate or to um, urge uh, the United States to adopt a policy that is going to serve U.S. interests, certainly at the time in which Mahan wrote, but even more powerfully so uh, in the years uh, uh, to come, you know, potentially sort of way, uh, way down the line. Um, you know, Mahan and his outlook and his sensibility, you know, he was a devotee of Alexander Hamilton and the ambitions that he had uh, for the Republic. He had no time really for the sort of the Jeffersonian notion of this um, sort of idyllic, um, you know, nation of, of uh, small holding, uh, you know, farmers. He, um, you know, was focused intently, um, uh, ruthlessly on, on the creation of a very different type of American empire. Um, and, you know, when I say a different type of American empire, I mean, following the Spanish-American war, uh, Mahan was sceptical, both about the, the notion of going to war with Spain, uh, but also about the wisdom of acquiring, um, well, certainly the Philippines, he was deeply ambivalent about. And, um, uh, you know, he didn't want the United States to become a colonizing power in the sense that Great Britain and France had been one, but uh, to be something um, different. And, of course, this is a story that... Um, Daniel Immervar, and, and in some respects, tells in his in, in his recent book on how to hide an empire. Um, so yeah, so this is this is why I view I view Mahan as, as significant in this way. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And so uh, just moving on to um, Wilson, um, there's a lot that we can say about Wilson, um, but something that I I'd like to uh, reflect on is um, just how much. Uh, other foreign policy thinkers um, return to Wilson, mm. um, you know, either to beat him up or to emulate him. Um, and so Wilson's like another figure that, um, you know, appears and reappears um, throughout your book. Yeah. Why, why is there this tradition of like going back to Wilson just so often in U.S. foreign policy thinking? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this, this, this body of ideas that, that, that Wilson, um, uh, you know, pronounces on and unveils in various speeches, and of course in the fourteen points as well, uh, the set of ideas that becomes known as, as Wilsonianism. You know, a very kind of distinct ideology, and also a, you know a marker um, or a way to self-identify uh, as a supporter of a particular way of conducting, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy. Um, absolutely, I mean, Wilsonian is 
of course, used today, uh, and it was used in the Obama administration. I think many of Obama's advisors uh, would have been quite happy to identify us, uh, you know, as Bolsonian in many respects. Um, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, Samantha Power, I think, to a degree. Um, it's kind of fascinating that these ideas have endured, so, you know, in, in this way. I mean, it's interesting that George Kennan, uh, in some ways, contributes to, uh, to to Wilson's kind of centrality to the twenty to 20th century U.S. foreign policy and to the tradition, uh, in that he wrote this book, American Diplomacy, nineteen hundred to nineteen fifty. Um, which became hugely popular, and of course is a really important expression of of Kennan's, you know, variant on classical uh, realism. Um, but of course, for him, Wilson was the was you know, if not quite a villain, uh, he was certainly someone who ushered in a wrong turn uh, so far as U.S. foreign policy was concerned in regards to this uh, legalistic, moralistic um, uh, set of ideas or mindset uh, that Wilson um, uh, subscribed to. And I think, you know, one of the, uh, I mean, there's a wonderful historian, uh, Southern Methodist, uh, Thomas Nock, uh, who's written on uh, Kennan and Wilson, uh, you know, Kennan's intellectual relationship with Wilsonian ideas. Um, I think when you, as, as you kind of follow Kennan through his career, one of the real surprises for me um, came in uh, in, a testimony uh, that Cannon delivered uh, in the Senate in 1989. Um, And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, during uh, the Senate testimony, uh, asked Cannon a question, and it was, you know, given that the Soviet Union uh, seems to be uh, moving in a very different direction, given the Cold War as we know it, um, appears to be winding down, is the time not right for Wilsonian ideas to... Uh, to re-emerge as a, you know, as a force, as a shaper of, of U.S. foreign policy, and I, when I, you know, r- but rather than saying no, this is a this is a terrible idea, you know, w- Wilson's had this, uh, you know, negative negative effect. Um, Cannon said, well, actually, there are two areas where Wilsonian ideas are uh, vitally important, and that's in reference to uh, climate change. Um, it's impossible. You know, to have any type of um, uh, global response uh, to this, uh, you know, to this uh, looming uh, crisis of climate, uh, unless every nation is invested in that response. So here, you know, Kennan's really alluding to um, uh, Wilson's belief in international organizations and, of course, the League of Nations. Um, and then, secondly, in regards to nuclear proliferation, you know, he he believed, you know. Fervently, that a serious, um, very serious response to the proliferation of nuclear weapons was 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 necessary, and, and the way to achieve that uh, again was through a Wilsonian um, a sensibility, a set of ideas um, that again has an international organization um, at its heart. So um, Wilson, uh, you know, he was so important to virtually every you know, Cold War president, even the ones that don't necessarily uh, speak a language that necessarily resonates with, with Wilson, such as Richard Nixon, um, ended up, you know, they end up in many of their speeches um, espousing ideas, um, using language that is, you know, uh, Wilsonian in lineage, whether it's in reference to, you know, to, uh, to freedom, to liberty, uh, democracy, um, and, and so on and so forth. And just a sort of a final point on Wilson. Um, I, it was fascinating watching the um, Republican uh, primary debates 
uh, I guess this was 2015, um, you know, you had uh, Ted Cruz at one point during a Republican primary debate um, say, you know, I'm not a Bolsonian democracy promoter, I think was the, you know, to paraphrase, you know, he's not, you know, he wanted to assert the fact that he was not a Bolsonian. He did not believe in uh, deploying U.S. force uh, to serve um, altruistic goals that weren't pertinent and that didn't directly um, uh, advance uh, the U.S. national interests. So even in a Republican <laughs> primary debate at that time, Wilson is there. Uh, present as, as, as a point of reference. And of course, the likes of Jeb Bush, um, I think Marco Rubio, uh, you know, they would take a, they would take a different, uh, a different view, uh, and would view the Wilsonian uh, legacy, in foreign policy terms, at least, particularly as it pertains to democracy, if not you know, to the centrality of uh, international organizations, you know, they, they would view Wilson in much more positive terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so perhaps if uh, maybe Kennan isn't the ghost in your book, uh, perhaps uh, Wilson is the actual ghost. Yeah, Kennan is just like the the brooding intellectual on the sidelines. That's right. Well, yeah, that's right. Because yeah. I mean, Wilson is a ghost in the sense that yeah, he's he's dead, and you know his yeah, ideas are there. Kennan actually is there, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, physically, and uh, you know, it's um, it's it's re- it's remarkable actually that that, that Kennan uh, remains uh, you know so so active uh, intellectually yeah. and so lucid uh, throughout. Yeah. Uh, so just just moving on a little bit, uh, I um, was um, struck by uh, the ni- how the nineteen forties played out in your book. Um, so uh, you know the nineteen forties are like a, a really critical decade for U.S. foreign policy history, um, just in general. Um, but it seems like uh, um, uh, the, the majority of your actors. Are doing something in the 40s, yeah. you know, whether it's um, uh, like Charles Beard um, criticizing FDR or, um, or uh, Lippmann sort of doing the same, but then not. Um, and then uh, Kissinger is a, you know, he's fighting as a U.S. soldier and then he's a student, Cannon working as a diplomat. And then you have Nitsa as like a national security uh, manager. And so they're all sort of appearing in this decade um, in different guises. Uh, can you say something about this decade and why it matters so much in your analysis and perhaps like what all these different act, maybe not all, but um, what some of these um, actors are thinking about. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right in regards to the individuals in the book. You know, if you, if you draw these circles, you know, as a, as a Venn diagram, yeah, the shaded area in the middle is, is, you know, the, the 1940s. Um, And it was interesting when I was considering or rather it was interesting for me to try and figure out who I'd like to use or who I'd like to write about uh, specifically in the context of this, of, of, of this decade and particularly the second world war, you know, the, um, well, you know, the, the, the period actually immediately preceding the, uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor up to the end of the war. And it was difficult in some ways because FDR, um, certainly was, uh, you know, um, uh, someone keenly interested in foreign policy, you know, a great admirer of Alfred there Mahan, um, you know, someone who served in the Wilson administration, um, but not, you know, not an intellectual, um, certainly, uh, I think, uh, and also someone who, you know, hadn't written uh, a, a great deal on foreign policy. Most of the people that I look at um, have a published kind of corpus before they come to 
um, formulate their ideas about the U.S. and the world. So, so Walter Lippmann struck me as uh, as an interesting uh, individual to look at in this context because he was there, um, uh, you know, throughout. Um, he obviously had his hugely influential column um, uh, today and tomorrow, uh, but you know, he had the ear of the president as well to a significant degree, although, of course, he had, he had written some pretty um, <laughs> unkind things about FDR um, uh, in 1932-33 and, of course, about the about the New Deal um, later. Um, you know, Littman, in regards to his um, impact, which is, of course, difficult to trace on, on public opinion, but given uh, the readership that, that, that Littman had, um, I think given the quality of some of the insights that he produced, particularly in his book, U.S. Foreign Policy, uh, Shield of the Republic, uh, published in 1943, uh, and, and in other ways, too, he was a, he was a useful uh, individual to look at in kind of explaining how the United States um, turns from this you know, profound reaction and response against Wilson and Wilsonianism uh, through the 20s and into the early 30s. And then um, FDR's, you know, to begin with, you know, um, you know, very incremental, faltering, but then, you know, into much more sort of decisive uh, steps to take the United States into much sort of deeper engagement, uh, particularly in the alliance uh, and support for, for Great Britain, uh, which happened much later. And of course, you also have um, Charles Beard, you know, uh, writing uh, on this period Presenting a view, uh, I suppose this is kind of the, the the last hurrah in certain respects for a a foreign policy approach or approach to the world that really does owe a very kind of conscious debt uh, to to Thomas Jefferson and his hope that a, a genuine um, uh, isolation uh, is uh, is possible in regards to the economy, you know, principally. Um, Beard is deeply fearful about the, uh, well, I guess the world that emerges following the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Beard's very first book, uh, which he which he wrote when he was uh, at Oxford, uh, this is before he wrote his PhD, was a study of the Industrial Revolution and the, you know, the, the misery uh, that this causes to uh, to workers, uh, the, those who kind of toil uh, to uh, you know to, to to make this uh, to make this happen, the um, the descent of um, many uh, British cities, the slums, the smoke, you know, he views industrialization, I think, writ large in very, very sort of neg- negative terms uh, in the way that Jefferson, I think, would in, in, in certain respects. Um, and, you know, Beard makes this attempt, you know, to persuade Franklin Roosevelt that actually, uh, you know, tending America's own garden is, is a feasible proposition. And Roosevelt, you know, decisively, you know, rejects that, takes the United States in a very uh, different direction. Now, what what the the Second World War, um, you know, does from Beard's perspective is, you know, the impact is almost wholly negative. Um, the uh, the war um, um, leads. Uh, too much resource, clearly, uh, or it leads resource being allocated uh, in much too high a proportion uh, to defence. Um, he believes that education uh, in the United States is suffering uh, as, as a result of this. And also in a very kind of profoundly conservative way, 
he dislikes uh, or he has problems with the entry of so many women into the workforce uh, in, uh, in the United States through the war years. He fears this is going to be um, very damaging uh, to the American family. Uh, it has significant implications for labor. You know, the Second World War, you know, for, for Beard is, you know, something to mourn, uh, not something uh, to celebrate in spite of, you know, the, the the very real stakes involved and, you know, the, the fact that the principal adversary in the European theatre is, is Nazi Germany and still uh, Beard uh, finds it um, uh, profoundly sort of problematic. For what the Second World War does for other uh, individuals that I write about in the book, for Henry Kissinger, for example, is an utterly transformative effect, you know, has a transformative impact. It kind of... Um, makes Henry Kissinger to a, to a certain degree. You know, the uh, the U.S. Army, uh, the service that he, he performs uh, in post-war Germany, um, the advantage uh, that he takes of, the, I mean, the way in which uh, Kissinger returns and takes advantage of the GI Bill to study at Harvard. Um, you know, this... Um, you know, is is, is seminal uh, in in regards to the development of, of, of Kissinger's career. Paul Nitze, of course, isn't in the European uh, theatre, uh, you know, principally, but he travels to Japan uh, following the uh, the firebombing of Tokyo and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, you know, he draws really uh, you know fascinating and in some ways counterintuitive conclusions from. The experience of witnessing the devastation wrought by the atomic bombs, and it's, you know, essentially, actually, he, see, he sees Tokyo and he sees uh, Nagasaki, and he doesn't really see any huge difference between the devastation caused by uh, fire bombing uh, in Tokyo and the atomic bombing uh, in Nagasaki. Both cities are absolutely flattened, and he views, you know, from that point on, atomic weaponry as a, as a, as a usable weapon and uh, something that. Uh, has a real kind of practical uh, applicability, and this is why, in part, he urges so so strongly the development of the hydrogen bomb. Um, you know, when when that debate uh, is kind of first ushered in in 1949. So, the 40s, you know, it's the end of American innocence. It's a it's a devastating um, uh, intervention uh, for Charles Beard because of what it does to the you know U.S. society. Um, uh, the upending uh, of um, you know uh, of family life, the the devastation it's going to wreak potentially on on on, ed- on education, uh, but for most the Second World War is the well to coin a cliche it's the incontrovertibly good war, it's the instance where the U.S. deploys force to advance uh, a just a righteous cause, and um, and the intervention is and of course the, the famous uh, Munich analogy. Is one that so many of these individuals invoke uh, at various points um, throughout uh, their, mm-hmm. their career. So we haven't actually talked about the title of your book yet, uh, but I think now might be a good opportunity to do so um, because uh, you start off the book thinking about um, a debate between Nitsa and Kennan over the question of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, and so... Um, what does this say about um, the, uh, the the two approaches? The you know the seeing foreign policy as as an, as an art and seeing foreign policy as a science. What does this debate say about that? Mm. So I mean, just 
um, just to kind of con- convey just a brief sense of what I'm, I'm attempting to do with the art science sort of binary. I mean, w- one of the interesting things to me, uh, particularly, I guess, as an outsider looking at uh, U.S. foreign policy through the 20th century and beyond, and and certainly in the period post 1945, is you have the, the rise to policy relevance of the social sciences, um, which you don't have clearly in, 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 in previous centuries in Britain and 19th century. Um, you know, the, the professional social sciences don't exist in, in the way that they do in the United States in the 20th. And, you know, tracing the impact that this has on foreign policy, on the type of advice dispensed, on the grandiosity or otherwise of certain uh, planned proposals for how the world uh, or how the United States should interact with the world, that seemed to me very important. And it's something that Reinhold, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr writes about in his book, The Irony of American History. You know, he, he views the rise of the social sciences with, you know, some concern and scepticism that the world isn't, uh, you know, it lacks a pattern. Uh, it's important to treat uh, the world as one might treat a laboratory experiment. Uh, nothing's possessed of stable properties. And so I think Niebuhr is writing on that, Kennan's to a degree, Hans Morgenthau's book, uh, Scientific Man versus Power Politics, which again is kind of alert to some of the potential problems that might come from uh, you know, viewing the world or uh, viewing the world as, 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 as um, uh, you know, as makeable with the application of the right theories. Um, this this had an impact on, on the way that I set things up and the way that I framed it. Now, in regards to that, uh, the hydrogen bomb debate, I mean, it was interesting to me initially looking at it that when Kennan approached this problem um, of um, should the United States develop a hydrogen bomb, um, he turned to philosophy, he turned to literature, he quotes from the Bible uh, in his uh, very long 79-page uh, uh, paper, uh, urging the United States not to develop the hydrogen bomb, that this is uh, abhorrent, you know, morally uh, and in so many different ways. Uh, this simply should not happen. Um, and that was very, very much keeping with Kennan's kind of uh, intellectual outlook, his likes, his dislikes, his sensibilities. Uh, Kennan believed that a good foreign policy education, and he actually wrote, an, <laughs> wrote a memo on this at one point, I think it's 45 or 46, you know, how should a, a good foreign policy advisor be trained? How should a diplomat be trained? Um, Kennan believed it was uh, in history and philosophy and literature. Uh, the, the, these were the key uh, texts uh, or genres or types of um, uh, reading that one, sh- one should engage in. Um, now, Paul Netzer was, was very different. Uh, he set up what would become the School for Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. in 1943. And he and Christian Herter, who... Um, uh, with whom he collaborated, uh, believed that foreign policy um, had to, or the teaching of foreign policy had to change, that it wasn't enough to use history, uh, philosophy. It wasn't enough to respond on a case-by-case basis reactively uh, to events, you know, emerging in the world. That, you know, the social sciences, uh, the the field of international relations as it would develop, uh, this was where, you know, wisdom potentially could be derived. And of course, in in the case of Paul Nitzer, uh, he was influenced by um, uh, psychology and psychologists such as, uh, such as Nathan uh, uh, Lights or uh, Lighties. I'm not even sure how he pronounced his second name actually. Uh, at the Rand Corporation, and um, 
uh, and he believed in the application of uh, systems analysis, you know, to to, uh, to foreign policy problems. So when he considered how the hydrogen bomb uh, or whether the H bomb should be developed, he uh, he figured out the science. Um, he interviewed Edward Teller. He um, uh, looked at this as a problem that could be, uh, or as, as a uh, as a question uh, that was best answered uh, uh, with recourse to a type of thinking that didn't. Uh, necessarily take into account uh, issues of philosophical import uh, that didn't necessarily engage with great works of literature or were inspired by that, uh, but looked dispassionately, uh, coldly, um, well, perhaps scientifically, at you know what would the United States, uh, if the United States declined to develop the H bomb, would the Soviet Union uh, follow suit? And he concluded it would not. It would be dangerous uh, for the correlation of forces, as he described it, to tilt so much in the direction of the Soviet Union. Uh, he doubted that an international organization was fit uh, for the task of um, uh, keeping a lid on this technology. And so his calculation was that the U.S. must uh, must proceed. So in part, it was the um, kind of the sources, you know, the uh, you know wh- where each individual looked, uh, which books they 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 they, they uh, turned to for, uh, in, or types of thinking they turned to for uh, for inspiration, for instruction, and I guess in Cannon's case for solace. Um, that that was mm-hmm. uh, you know that that was kind of fascinating. So we're gonna skip over uh, a, a bunch of your book um, as we're uh, um, nearing the end of our time, and also. Your book is a very large one, uh, so <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. My, as my as my editor uh, reminded me many times uh, after various drafts that I sent up that uh, sent back that hadn't cut quite enough. <laughs> as a historian reading it, I loved it. Um, but um, I just I wanted to uh, talk about um, Paul Wolfowitz. Um, this was another chapter that uh, I really really enjoyed. And uh, again, I didn't know very much about um, Paul Wolfowitz. You know, but he serves as sort of your neocon, uh, you know, uh, representative, uh, and his career just really it, it 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 just follows the overall trajectory of neoconservatism so closely. Um, but yet he's also really unusual in, in uh, or at least like unique compared to other neocons. He's extremely cosmopolitan. Mm. Um, he had an, uh, a sincere interest in like foreign cultures and foreign languages. Um, Christopher Hitchens called him a bleeding heart liberal, aside from the uh, uh, the national security stuff. Yeah. So um, just in really broad strokes, can you paint that picture of Wolfowitz for our listeners? Mm. So, I mean, what, what there were many things that struck me as interesting about Wolfowitz. And um, I mean, what I mean, I just want to give a shout out to a chapter in a book by uh, Richard Immerman, um, Empire uh, of Liberty, which um, has a chapter on Wolfowitz and was, you know, really kind of important in terms of um, setting me on a particular path and how to uh, think think of Wolfowitz. And, you know, Emmerman's chapter is, is is kind of fascinating. He doesn't hide his, you know, disapproval of um, uh, the advice he dispensed in regards to, well, many, many different areas. But uh, this was where I discovered, you know, uh, you know, and while he was living in Indonesia, he was U.S. ambassador there. You know, he fully immersed himself in that culture, and he won a cooking uh, contest. He won a cooking contest. <laughs> this was this was a detail that I got from Richard's book that I just find absolutely kind of you know fascinating, and so in so, so many different ways. And you know that 
that description, you know, that Hitchens kind of puts, I mean, Hitchens, I don't know, in, in some of his judgments, I guess, <laughs> particularly, in re- particularly in regards to the second Iraq war, you know, I, I, I have issues there, but, um, but yeah, you can, you can sort of detect that, you know, he's um, yeah, socially liberal, he's cosmopolitan, he's interested in the world. Um, and yet he uh, helps, you know, unleash, you know, a, a, a terrible disaster uh, in, in regards to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And as I was thinking about Wolfowitz, I couldn't help but think about uh, Walt Rostow and about, you know, similarly, you know, Rostow was, you know, uh, well, I mean, he was in the left of the Democratic Party in certain respects. And, you know, he wanted to uh, increase taxation. He believed that the Kennedy administration could be more ambitious in regards to its goals vis-a-vis redistribution uh, in regards to civil rights and so many sort of different areas. And yet there was this kind of strident uh, belief that uh, U.S. uh, intervention uh, could uh, transform all for the better um, many parts of the world, you know, not just Southeast Asia, not just Vietnam in the context of that war, uh, but many different areas um, indeed. So, So Wolfowitz, you know, he he does his PhD, uh, is, is, is done at Yale. Uh, he uh, serves in the Carter administration. Uh, this is his, you know, his first kind of substantive uh, role within, within a presidential administration. Um, and um, he helps in many ways craft, you know, a set of ideas for what would become the Carter Doctrine you know, in regards to the centrality of, uh, you know, the Persian Gulf region to U.S. foreign policy concerns. So from a really early stage, you know, the late 70s, he's writing and thinking uh, about Saddam Hussein, uh, which, of course, you know, makes a huge difference when it comes to uh, both the first and the second um, uh, Iraq wars that happened further down the line. Now, he's advised by people, you know, he's he was taught by uh, by Alan Bloom, uh, who has a, a huge influence on Wolf Woods, and by Leo Strauss, whose influence isn't quite as significant as some have suggested, but you know, uh, but you know, uh, significant nonetheless. Um, but he serves in the Carter administration partly because you know he's at one with Carter on the importance of uh, human rights, you know, in foreign policy. He's at one with um, uh, Brzezinski in many ways, and his you know, fierce opposition to Soviet adventurism. Um, he finds himself, you know, at home in, in many respects in that administration. But when it becomes apparent, um, you know, in 1979, that things um, things are going, uh, you know, from bad to worse for Carter and that Reagan is, is, the, is the rising force uh, in US politics, um, he, you know, gets out of that administration and uh, with a view to hopefully getting a job in uh, a Reagan administration, which, you know, Reagan and Carter, you know, share a lot of similarities, you know, in regards to their sort of foreign policy outlook, um, in regards to the, uh, you know, this this uh, fiercely moralistic and, fier- well, and fiercely anti-communist, um, you know, set of policies that, that Carter begins uh, and, and that Reagan sort of continues uh, in many different ways. So Wolfowitz feels you know, very much at home in Reagan administration. There's some doubts among Reagan people that Wolfowitz is actually a, a genuine Republican, a conservative, and, and these doubts kind of kind of stay with him uh, through, through the 1980s. But, um, you know, he continue, he moves from various uh, jobs in the administration. He serves as um, 
chair of policy planning uh, briefly, the job that George Cannon, Paul Mitzer, Walt Rostow um, all, all, all had. Um, and then, you know, later, of course, he serves in the first Bush administration, uh, is, you know, uh, very important as one of the architects, though not necessarily the principal author of the defence p- uh, policy guidance document of 1992, which is a very bold statement of what uh, U.S. Uh, post-Cold War foreign policy should should do and what it should seek to achieve. And that is, you know, to forestall the advance of any sort of peer competitor uh, in, in that realm. It's a very kind of aggressive, expansive um, uh, document. Um, but then, you know, through the Clinton era, up into his service uh, in the Bush administration, he focuses ever more on Iraq and on the threat posed by Saddam Hussein. Uh, and uh, you know to, to you know to his neighbors uh, and to his people, but also by you know he's intrigued by the potential that Iraq, um, because of uh, you know the levels of education in that country, because of its sort of latent economic potential, um, this is a this is a nation that the United States can potentially uh, democratize and transform uh, in the way that it democratized and transformed uh, post-war Japan and post-war uh, West Germany, a historical analogy that he, he deploys. Um, you know, obviously this is, this is really sort of problematic in many, many ways that, you know, I, I detail in the book and many others have, have done so uh, beside. But Wolfowitz serves in so many presidencies uh, as, you know, a diverse kind of set of interests, um, but he represents something uh, that's very much in the ascendancy uh, in the late, uh, late seventies, the eighties. I mean, George H. W. Bush is disappointing in many respects. Clinton, in some ways, holds a certain degree of promise, but you know, this fizzles out um, in many ways. He's um, not as strident in his pursuit of values as Wolfowitz would like. But then with Bush, uh, George W. Bush, you know, there's a lunch. You know, he tells Wolfowitz, uh, I think it's Wolfowitz, uh, that you know he's. He hasn't thought deeply about foreign relations and he's very open to new ideas. And this, of course, is, wow, what an opportunity, uh, you know, for Wolfowitz <laughs> uh, and others. You know, you have a blank slate waiting to be to be drawn on, at least according to uh, the anecdote that's in uh, Jacob Halbrand's book. Um, they, knew they, were, they knew they were right. And, you know, he, he grasps it. And um, so, yeah, he's, he's uh, you know, interesting in, in so many different ways. And I think the, the parallel with Walt Rostow actually kind of, works it, it, suit, it suits them uh suits mm-hmm. them both yeah I, I, reading the wolfowitz chapter i was um i was really thinking about just like how wolfowitz's life is just such a good example of why biography really matters in uh u.s foreign policy uh history um just because you can trace out a lot of these continuities between you know different regimes but then also you know just as you can like get into like the the contradictions of the ideas that are sometimes embodied in people yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I thought that he was a really suitable candidate for um, for your book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just want to ask you one more question about the book. So the year is 2019. Um, your book came out half a decade ago, um, and it kind of uh, concludes on, um, you know, some, some notes and questions about Barack Obama. Barack Obama is no longer the president of the United States. If you were to, um, you know, add a, another chapter to your book, you know, in that that would sum up or um, represent the Trumpian foreign policy. 
Um, is there a particular um, person or a set of ideas that would belong in that chapter? Mm. So this this is a really uh, fascinating question, and in in different sort of ways, it's it's been it's been put to me whenever I've kind of given a a, a job, uh, given a talk on the book, particularly obviously after Trump's election, and I've uh, I failed to answer it <laughs> every time uh, in every instance <laughs> that it's been put to me, and I, I'm sure I'm going to fail to answer it again here, and <laughs> um, and I just I just want to um, I mean just um, a, a point on the book and how it how it ends. Um, Initially, the idea with the book would be, uh, you know, was going to be, I'm going to write an epilogue, and the epilogue will discuss the Obama administration, but won't really go into great detail uh, on the on, on on Obama's foreign policies. And my editor was very keen that a full chapter uh, should should be should be researched and drafted on Obama. And I was so so reluctant to, to do this <laughs> because, you know, writing researching and writing on a presidency and, and progress was just a horrific prospect to me. And maybe, maybe that discomfort is evident on a page. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but it certainly, um, you know, I found that really, really tough. Now, what uh, my my blind spots are so many, and my failings are so many, and and they and they came out again in a, a talk I did at Council on Foreign Relations in uh, the summer of uh, 2016, so just before the presidential election, and it was on the legacy of the Obama administration. And my co-panelists were Daniel Dresner and Michael Mandelbaum. And, you know, we were all focusing on, you know, what are the major legacy issues for the Obama administration? And, you know, we talked a bit about uh, the, well, the Iran deal, uh, the Paris climate um, uh, deal, uh, the Accords. Uh, we spoke a little bit about uh, rapprochement in, uh, in, in Cuba. Um, we spoke a bit about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We spoke about so many uh, issues and areas that the Trump administration has, you know, purposely uh, and very consciously set out to trash or dismantle. Um, so, you know, when I think about Obama's legacy uh, now, and I think of the sort of the signature achievements in foreign policy, um, you know, where where do they lie? What what's the sort of what is the substantive legacy? In some ways, I think it's um, Obama similar to uh, Dwight Eisenhower in that. It's the paths that he didn't take that might prove to be more significant than the paths that he did. And, you know, the non-intervention or the decision not to intervene uh, in Syria, for which, of course, Obama took uh, immense flack, uh, might turn out to be a significant legacy issue in the same way as Eisenhower's reluctance to intervene at the NBN Fou following French defeat uh, or, to, or to shore up the French position there uh, is, a, is a decision that, uh, he, he he made and, and it's one of his major legacy issues in, in certain ways. Now thinking about Trump, I mean, essentially his his message to uh, to the U.S. to the U.S. electorate is that um, the individuals that I discuss in the book, particularly in the post-war period, um, have by and large done a fairly horrible job, <laughs> you know, in, in so many sort of different areas. Uh, the focus, the particular focus that, 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 that Trump has, you know, this notion that the United States is being ripped off, that uh, the alliance system uh, ushered in, you know, the creation of NATO, you know, something that uh, one of Truman's kind of signature achievements. Well, actually, this is, you know, it's becoming a ruse through which um, Europeans gain free security um, at the expense of U.S. taxpayers. Um, his invocation of America first um, you know, echoing uh, you know the, the uh, title of the America First Committee, chaired by Charles Lindbergh, 
the appeals to a sort of a, a narrow uh, nationalism, yeah, the, the, the racism, the uh, distinct lack of interest in uh, development aid. Um, many of the, uh, you know, the, the policy areas that the individuals or many of the individuals anyway, I, uh, you know, believed in or held true were, uh, were th- those are the values that Trump is directly challenging. And um, I think um, in, in terms of an individual uh, or in terms of a set of ideas that kind of animates Trump is hard. I mean, the, uh, I mean, Steve Bannon uh, probably is much more significant uh, a figure in shaping Trump's worldview, say, than H.R. McMaster, who H.R. McMaster is like, you know, a classic foreign policy intellectual would absolutely fit into a book such as Worldmaking, uh, given his PhD, given his you know, his, his background, his keen interest in foreign policy. Actually, McMaster blurbed my first book, really? <laughs> uh, the, the, bi- the biography of uh, Walt Rostow, um, which is my, I think it's probably my proudest achievement is, uh, <laughs> is, is the fact that both H.R. McMaster and uh, John Gray, uh, the, uh, the philosopher based uh, uh-huh. the LSE, both blurbed my first book. And I think, you know, a book that can appeal to such diverse <laughs> <laughs> thinkers as McMaster and Gray is, you know, well, it, it may not be kind of um, worthy in and of itself, but certainly worth a look. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, Trump is, um, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to those who argue there's elements of continuity. Um, you know, Trump, when he launched the airstrikes against Assad, you know, this kind of wave of adulation from individuals who had been decrying Trump, the never Trumpers, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the Democrats uh, who, who are obviously keenly supportive of a more interventionist type of foreign policy, you know, for them, that was Trump being presidential, you know, with firing Tomahawk missiles, you know, in the most futile way um, at Syria and at this airfield, you know, that was that was Trump, you know, growing um, into the job. Um, but these kind of um, uh, they, these are few and, 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 and far between. And Trump's, uh, you know, the comfort that he has clearly or the greater comfort that he has in uh, speaking with uh, or in corresponding with uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, with, with so many other kind of. Um, authoritarian leaders across the world is is kind of fascinating, but particularly his opposition to uh, to alliances. I mean, for a president to so botch uh, relations with the UK, I mean, it's just the easiest relationship in the world. All you have to do is say, "Yeah, there's a special relationship every few months, and everything's fine." <laughs> uh, you know, Trump. Uh, you know, his weighing in on Brexit, his criticism of Theresa May, and her handling of it. Um, his preference for a hard Brexit, you know, it's 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 remarkable, and his opposition, of course, to uh, uh, to, to TPP uh, and uh, you know to NAFTA, the kind of the, the you know this um, again sort of challenges very fundamentally uh, sort of essential verities that are held by the foreign policy establishment. So Trump probably marks the eclipse, you know, in certain ways of the type of foreign policy thinker that I write about uh, and world making. Um, which is why I, I always struggle with this question. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that was a pretty uh, comprehensive and very good uh, answer. I also wonder if, um, if I can recall the beginning of your book, you discuss how you struggled to find an intellectual to represent uh, the America Firsters. Mm, yeah. um, and then you ended up uh, you know, using um, uh, Charles Beard as a sort of America Firster. And I, I wonder if, 
yeah. for some of the same reasons that it was hard to find a representative of that movement, an intellectual um, representative of that movement. Um, you were also struggling to find an intellectual representative of yeah. someone like Trump and his politics, which um, uh, I agree there are tons of continuities, but then in um, many other regards, there are just a, there's a whole eclectic range of um, idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that's a very insightful parallel. I hadn't actually considered that before in reference to Trump. But yeah, Beard, you know, that era, you know, who are the the prominent sort of advocates of, of, of isolation? You know, Charles Coughlin and Charles Lindbergh and other, you know, uh, chauvinistic, anti-Semitic kind of, you know, this kind of... Um, this uh, th- th- this type this type of individual, you know, clearly um, is not was not one uh, that I was keen to write about. But you know, in large part because there's no great substantive foreign policy vision, uh, you know, that, that sort of animates uh, them. But in regards to Trump and America First, yeah, there there is. Uh, I mean, probably Steve Bannon. Actually, the more the more I think about, it, and I know he's not in the administration uh, anymore, but I think his influence. Uh, has been uh, has been profound uh, in, in, in many ways. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to leave the book. And uh, I just want to ask you a quick question. Uh, maybe you can say a few words on it. Um, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so I'm writing a book about uh, a journalist who worked for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and she um, she lived in Berlin from 1911 to 1941. Um, and her name was uh, Sigrid Schultz. Um, so it's it's a book that um, examines well the the arc of her life uh, and and career um, because she lived in Berlin for this you know pivotal kind of thirty year uh, period uh, she had an incredibly um, uh, nuanced deep uh, understanding uh, of, of 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 German politics of interwar Germany of the rise and fall of the Weimar Republic in which she reported. Um, and uh, she came to, I mean, she very kind of consciously, um, near the end of the 1920s, early 30s, cultivated Hermann Goering because she anticipated that the Nazi party was going to be a major force in German politics. And through uh, Goering, she was able to interview Hitler. And um, through the 1930s, uh, her, 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 her reporting was was, was um, hugely impressive in the most trying of circumstances. So you know, the Gestapo attempted to frame her for espionage uh, at one point, um, unlike Dorothy Thompson, who was ejected from uh, Germany uh, because of her hostile reporting. Schultz was careful never to go too far uh, in regards to insulting well, Hitler and, 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 the, um, uh, and the higher echelons of the Nazi party. But then she also had to um, navigate publishing in a newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, whose editor, his proprietor, was an isolationist, you know, William McCormick. Um, so it was an incredibly difficult uh, job that she had uh, through this period, but she um, she performed it with aplomb. Um, she got a scoop uh, on the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact. She, was, she, she broke that story. Um, she was, um, actually, she was injured in a, in a bombing raid, a British bombing raid on Berlin. Uh, in, uh, in in late 1940, and um, then returned to Germany in 1944, um, where she became one of the first journalists to enter the Buchenwald uh, camp uh, and report from there. And then she uh, later covered uh, the um, the beginning of the Nuremberg trials. So you know, from ent- from interviewing uh, General Ludendorff in, in 1919 uh, to Hitler in 1931. 
and to and to meeting um, uh, many prominent Nazis after they had been apprehended and were about to go on trial at Nuremberg. You know, it's a really fascinating, uh, well informed, and at times brilliant sort of perspective on the, on this period. Um, and also, you know, the challenges that she confronted as a woman and in a, in a, a male-dominated profession um, and society uh, are kind of fascinating to behold as well. So, um, so yeah, it's an, it's another biography, but it's one that doesn't focus on U.S. foreign policy per se, but certainly focuses on a on a particular American um, in the world. <laughs> it sounds like a fascinating project. Yeah, thank you. David, I want to thank you again for speaking with me today. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Perfect. And thank you for listening to the New Books and Intellectual History podcast.